0: Today, answers matter more than ever before. That's why IBM is helping businesses manage customer questions with Watson Assistant. It's conversational AI designed to work for any industry. Let's put smart to work. Visit IBM.com slash Watson Assistant.
1: Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schaap. Over the next hour, Olympics writer Phil Hirsch explains the challenges of postponing the Games until 2021.
0: I've seen estimates of anywhere from 3 to $5 billion in extra costs to Japan for postponing the Games a year. So the challenges are considerable.
1: Plus, Professor Johnny Smith compares the effect of COVID-19 to the 1918 influenza pandemic.
0: By October of
2: 1918, it's very clear that you can't have sporting events. Football games are canceled. Boxing matches are canceled. So, the fact that some cities like Philadelphia were slow to respond would have a great impact as well on the sports world.
3: And
1: NBA skills trainer Rob McClanahan describes how to stay physically fit during quarantine.
4: Home gym or not, you need to get your body moving, and I'll be sitting around watching Netflix all day which is easy to do. Maybe go for a run outside by yourself, hop on a treadmill, you know, the jail workout, push ups, pull up, something like that. But I think the main thing is eating right.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schaap.
3: Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. We've been off the last couple of weeks in the midst of the coronavirus crisis, but we are back now. And our first guest is one of the most respected chroniclers of the modern Olympic Games, the one and only Phil Hirsch. Phil, thank you for joining us.
0: Well, it's my pleasure, Jeremy. It's nice to speak to everybody, and I wish everybody to be well, stay safe, and stay home.
3: How are you doing? I mean, there's been so much to report on in the Olympic movement the last couple of weeks. Um, how have you been managing that as we're also all dealing with this new reality?
0: Well, actually, um, since a lot of what I'm doing now is for my own blog, it's been a a welcome diversion. Writers write. That's what we do. Um, And even though I'm writing about essentially the subject that's causing anxiety for all of us, it does allow my mind to focus on something else than than the statistics and the other stuff that if you keep following it uh, relentlessly all day, it's pretty terrifying.
3: You spent all that time at the Chicago Tribune. Now, where can people find your work?
0: Most of my figure skating work has been on NBCSports.com website. I've been working for them for a couple of years. And generally, though, it's my blog, which is, uh, if you put my name in and trotting, it'll pop up.
3: So, Phil, you know, we got the news. Um, we're speaking now on Tuesday, and we got the news eight days ago that the IOC um, – in coordination with uh, the Japanese Olympic Organizing Committee in Tokyo, uh, made the decision, of course, to postpone the Games. And now we know they'll take place almost exactly a year after they were supposed to take place, a late July opening ceremony in 2021. Um, what's it going to be like? What are the challenges pulling this off a year later?
0: Well first of all there's the biggest challenge which the IOC in its traditional we're more hubristic than anybody way did not even acknowledge when they sent out the new dates. I mean there is no 100% guarantee that this will be able to be held as rescheduled. So let's start with that. Let's hope that it's rescheduled. Let's hope that the coronavirus is under control enough by then to do it safely. Let's hope that there is a vaccine in place. So the challenges are gigantic. Um first of all you can start with. I mean, the Japanese Olympic Committee. I'm sorry, the Japanese Organizing Committee has basically rented a lot of these venues for a year, uh, this year, and now they've got to re-rent them. So presumably that's double paying. You know, you know, with Japan, it's a little more complicated because we always talk about Japan Inc. and this kind of uh, intermeshing of interests among various parties in Japan. So there may be less double paying than there might have been in another country. Um, then you've got to maintain the venues until then to keep them in, in the perfect condition. Uh, and presumably, if, if if the health situation allows, you're going to have to do some test events in some of them, which were canceled. Um, you've got to finish up the qualifying. 57% of, of uh, qualifying spots were allocated according to the IOC, which leaves 43%. And that leaves, in terms of the United States, that leaves our two biggest sports or the three and the three most popular sports, uh, athletics, track and field, gymnastics, and swimming. And then you've got the, you know, changing all the hotel reservations, changing, all, what do you do with the tickets? I mean, if you could stick uh, under the hard terms of force majeure. You could say, if you don't want to use this ticket, we're not going to refund you your money. Um Somebody suggested to me that there would be such demand for tickets turned back that probably, and in the interest of public relations, at some point, the organizers may say, look, if you don't want your tickets, let us know. We'll refund your money, or we will resell them. Um, So there's that, and then there's the the consideration of the apartments in the Olympic Village, approximately 5,000 apartments, which were supposed to become Uh, open to the people who buy them by the beginning of 2023 Uh, that obviously that may be delayed Um, some people have put down significant deposits and then the just the general cost i mean i've seen estimates of anywhere from three to five billion dollars in extra cost to japan for postponing the games a year so the challenges are considerable.
3: We're speaking with Phil Hirsch, the Olympics writer, correspondent for so many years with the Chicago Tribune, also writes now for NBC And dot com. And Phil, you know, there was a lot of criticism of the IOC for taking as long as it did to make this announcement that the games would be canceled or postponed. Um, but there were a lot of complicating factors, and they had to get their ducks in a row. What, what did you think about some of the public reaction to the delay, announcing the delay?
0: Well, a lot of the. They bring a lot of this on themselves with absolutely staggeringly awful public relations. Right. From the moment on March 4th, after an executive board meeting, the executive board is the kind of the ruling body of the IOC. Uh, when uh, the president, Thomas Bach, said neither the word postponement nor cancellation had been mentioned. And I just sat back saying to myself, really, that's either not the truth or you're being incredibly, incredibly irresponsible by not at least saying, you know, having someone have said, are we going to deal with the possibility of either of these things? So there's that. And then when they announced that that they reached a situation where they might postpone the games and it might take up to four weeks. For them to reach a decision and at the same time they urged athletes many of whose families had members dying members hospitalized friends other fellow athletes they said you know go prepare the best you can i mean how insensitive could you possibly be so obviously behind the scenes a whole nother narrative a hidden narrative was going on it was clear that the public decision to ask for a postponement was going to have to come from Japan, um, just for for the sake of uh, not trying to uh, be bigger than, than a sovereign nation. So what was going on in the background clearly was getting Japan to the point where they were willing to accept this possibility and discuss it publicly as the Prime Minister Abe did about a week before they announced that it would be postponed. But, What the public saw, what the general public saw, was an organization that couldn't get out of its own way in terms of public relations or or sensitivity.
3: Isn't it also about, Phil, I was thinking about this a lot too, Um, when the public thinks of the IOC, they don't think of it as an organization, and this is a problem with a lot of big organizations, not just the IOC, but they certainly come to mind, where they don't have any reason to believe based on history – that their priorities are the right priorities.
0: Exactly, you get in a situation of, of why would you trust these people? And particularly here in the United States, the only most people never even knew the IOC existed until the Bid City scandal exploded in in and starting in nineteen ninety nine, and then going almost all the way to the Salt Lake City games, uh, uh, which were the center of the scandal, but not the only city involved in in uh, underhanded uh, behavior for for um, to win the. Right. To host the Olympic Games. So all of a sudden, people discovered who the IOC was in the United States. And, and we also have to remember, we are not the only place in the world. There are 206 national Olympic committees. And then and and, uh, and a lot of this is also the English speaking world. Um, so from then on, whatever people knew about the IOC was totally negative. And again, it probably disappeared from public, the public consciousness until uh, this and when it was on everybody's mind, and then, all, you know, they, they misstep after misstep after misstep in terms of public relations.
3: Phil, uh, thanks, and, and please stay safe.
0: And you too, Jeremy, and all your all the listeners, the same.
3: Globetrotting by philiphersh.com if you want more from Phil.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
3: 102 years ago, the world was at war and a contagion was spreading. In Boston, the young left-hander, Babe Ruth, would be shifted permanently to the outfield because of a shortage of hitters. The Boston Symphony Orchestra conductor, Carl Muck, would be accused of espionage. And the lawyer, Charles Whittlesey, would volunteer for the American Expeditionary Force heading to France under the command of John J. Pershing. Their stories are the subject of a new book by Randy Roberts and Johnny Smith, War Fever, Boston Baseball, and America in the Shadow of the Great War. And we welcome Professor Johnny Smith to The Sporting Life. Johnny, thank you for being with us.
2: Oh, I'm glad to talk to you. Thank you.
3: So obviously, um, you know... Uh, the timing here is interesting. Uh, you've been working on this book, obviously, for at least a couple of years, and now it's being published. And uh, while it's not um, exclusively or even primarily about the Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918 and 1919, it plays a major role in the story. Um, now that we are here in this moment of time in the spring of 2020, how does your research and your writing about what happened in Boston and America and beyond in 1918 inform the way you're thinking about what we're in now?
2: You know, it's interesting to look back now on the Red Sox season of 1918 and how the influenza outbreak struck Boston that uh, in late August and early September it took place right as the World Series was happening. And so, you know, initially when I was following the story of the coronavirus, there were all these questions from sports writers and sports fans, you know, how is this going to disrupt the sports world? How long are we not going to have baseball? How long will opening day be delayed? And one of the things that's interesting to look back at 1918 is that the Red Sox World Series against the Cubs, the first three games were played in Chicago, And the last three games were played in Boston at Fenway Park. By September 5th, the day of game one, there are health authorities in Massachusetts who are warning city officials in Boston that there is a contagion that has spread from Commonwealth Pier where sailors had arrived from France, and it is spreading throughout the city. And yet, the games went on. You know, three World Series games at Fenway Park – a draft registration drive involving 100,000 men in Boston, uh, war bond drives, parades. These were all social gathering events that fueled the plague. And so when I think about the moment we're in now, and I reflect back on 1918, what I'm really thinking about is how it's so important that we follow the lessons of 1918, and that is this. The cities that uh, were able to install or have closure orders were able to mitigate fatalities. People who social, enacted social distancing practices in 1918 were far better off, but the cities that were slow to respond had far higher death rates.
3: And when I think about the cities that were slow to respond, and I'm certainly no scholar of the 1918 pandemic, but uh, we've all been reading a lot in the last few weeks, the city that comes to mind first is Philadelphia. What happened in Philadelphia?
2: Well, basically, you have it hit Boston first uh, on August 27th, 1918. And what you have is that soldiers and sailors are transporting the virus with them to other port cities like Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, there's a massive parade. And despite the fact that there are growing reports that that the pandemic is spreading, the officials in Philadelphia continue with this parade despite the signs everywhere, that people are gravely ill. And so what happens is that as a result of bringing thousands of people together in Philadelphia, it continues to spread. And so I think there are important lessons here, that when we think about Philadelphia and we think about Boston and we think about sports, you know, by October of 1918, it's very clear that you can't have sporting events. Uh, Football games are canceled. Boxing matches are canceled. In fact, in Philadelphia, Jack Dempsey was scheduled to fight in a match that was postponed because the outbreak was so severe. So the fact that some cities like Philadelphia were slow to respond would have a, a, a great impact as well on the sports world.
3: We're speaking with Professor Johnny Smith. He's a history professor at Georgia Tech. His new book, with Professor Randy Roberts of Purdue University, is War Fever, Boston Baseball, and America in the Shadow of the Great War. And the Spanish flu epidemic is, um, one of the factors, uh, is, is one of the elements of the story you tell, I should say, in this remarkable new book, War Fever. But it's also about, um, the anti-German sentiment, uh, which was so prevalent at this time as the United States, of course, was at war with Germany beginning in the spring of 1917 and up through November of 1918. And it's about Babe Ruth. It's about the war hero, Charles, Charles Whittlesey. It's about the famous, uh, conductor, Karl Muck. But, but in, in particular, Babe Ruth, who at this time, um, is a very accomplished young pitcher, 24 years old. He's had tremendous success. He's been one of the keys to the Red Sox World Series championship since coming up to the majors in late 1914. But 1918 uh um is the year in which we see him shifting uh shifting to the outfield more. How, how did that come about?
2: So yeah, Ruth goes to spring training, and by that time, the Red Sox have already lost 11 men, either to the, to the armed forces or to essential wartime industries, and they need hitters. And Ruth is having a blast during batting practice, launching baseballs over the outfield fence. And he finds that what he loves, really, is to hit. Pitching, you know, if he pitches a great game, the fans will clap. But when he gets a home run, the crowd roars. And he loves that feeling, you know, when the crowd roars It sends kills through his body. So he presses the manager, Ed Barrow, to let him play in the field more. And what happens is that Ruth really becomes seen as this mythical figure in the spring and summer of 1918. He will hit 11 home runs during that year, all of them coming in May and June. At one point, he hit seven home runs over the course of 17 games. And the press starts calling him the Colossus, right? Eventually, we all know him as the Colossus of Clout. But it begins during the war. And the opportunity for Ruth to become a hitter, to conceive of himself as a slugger, is a result of the Great War. The fact that there was this shortage due to the draft, the the Red Sox had lost players. It forced Ed Barrow to let Ruth play in the field. And to get
3: more cuts at the plate. Well, there's so much here in this book that is fascinating. We didn't even get to the issue of Ruth's Germanness and how, um, at a time of increasing anti-German sentiment, obviously, during the war, somehow that didn't touch Ruth. Uh, but if you want the full story, the book is War Fever, Boston Baseball in America, and America in the Shadow of the Great War by professors Randy Roberts of Purdue and Johnny Smith of Georgia Tech. Johnny, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for all your insights.
2: Thank you so much.
1: This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
3: This would have been the week of the Final Four. Of course, the NCAA canceled all of its tournaments And we just don't know when college sports or youth sports or pro sports are going to resume again. Our next guest, Jimmy Dykes, played basketball for Eddie Sutton at Arkansas. He was an assistant for the men's teams at Kentucky and Oklahoma State. He was the head women's coach at his alma mater. And for the last 25 years, he's been a basketball commentator at ESPN. His new book is The Film Doesn't Lie, Evaluating Your Life, One play at a time. Jimmy, thanks so much for being with us.
5: Jeremy, it's great to be on with you. It's just an odd, strange time in our country right now. And, man, I really appreciate you having me on. Look forward to visiting with you.
3: You Yeah, we spoke a few weeks ago, actually. We talked about your book. I think right before uh, kind of the world got shut down, or the United States anyway, got mostly shut down by the coronavirus. And of course, we're doing it again because so much has changed since then. And we were talking about the college basketball season, which now, uh, of course, is not taking place and uh, came to an abrupt end. How are you doing wrapping your head around? And you're a motivational speaker. Your book, uh, the film doesn't lie. It's about much more than basketball. It's about dealing with adversity. Um, how are you right now dealing with the situation?
5: Yeah, well, thank you for asking. First of all, my family is, is healthy and well, and we're you know abiding strictly with all the things that we need to be doing as a country and as individuals. But the biggest concern with me, my dad's 84. He's battling through liver cancer and lung cancer right now. So the balance of him going, going into the hospitals to get his treatment and, and having to go there and stay safe while he's doing it, that kind of hits home with me as much as anything right now. But, you know, I'm doing, I, we're, we're, we're doing really well. I, I'm using it as a time of just um, self-reflection on my uh, just in, in my own life and making sure I'm staying very, very engaged with my family. This is normally the time of year that my off-season begins, and that's, that process started two or three weeks earlier than what is normal Um, but I'm just trying to keep the, you know, an outlook on my life that's in the proper perspective Uh, sports being taken away from all of us has probably done that to some degree to all of us in, in, in some way. Uh, But I just think it's a time of, of uncertainty in our country and our own individual life. And a lot of times those are the times that we can experience the most growth, the most change in different areas. I'm trying to be, I'm trying to, be that guy right now
3: myself. I'm speaking with ESPN's Jimmy Dykes about what's going on in the world, of course, and also his new book, The Film Doesn't Lie, evaluating your life one play at a time. And you are certainly someone who has been leading uh, an examined life. You've examined um, the choices you've made and the decisions that you regret. Um, how are you using this time right now uh, when... You would be occupied with basketball. You would be about to, you know, start your kind of off season. How how are you filling the hours now?
5: Yeah, I think like everybody else, I've I've tried to be creative with my with my day. I'm I'm, I'm making sure that I'm productive with my day. So at the end of the day, I feel like I've accomplished good things in my life. Um, a lot of that has been much more use on social media. I've been active with my messages to people out there right now uh, with that content. i spent a lot of time with my book and the, the challenge of bookstores not being open and and just uh, not being out there as much during March Madness as I would like to have been. Uh, not only talking about the sport that I love, but my, my book. Um, but it's it's been a good time because I, I've actually gone back and, and uh, started reading my own book, which I don't know how many authors do that. I guess there's a little bit of hesitation at times to go back and actually start reading it through again Um, but there's some chapters in there Jeremy I think really hit hard with all of us right now one of them is surviving the drought and how do you go about surviving those hard times in life that just knock you down and I think we have all been drug into a drought in some form or fashion because of what we're dealing with as a country and I think there's a, a, a really good way to go through those times in life and i dive into that pretty thoroughly in, in, in this book. So that's one of the chapters that's really stood out to me to, to continue to, uh, remain grateful and thankful, even during a hard time. And that has to be intentional about doing that. Um, I try not to get stuck on why I think that's a bad place to be in life. When things don't roll your way, you, you stay stuck on why did this happen? I don't think that's a good, healthy thing to do. So I put those things into practice in my own life and just try to keep, keep a, a joyful heart right now in a time that has a lot of uncertainty.
3: When you say, Jimmy, the film doesn't lie, and you emphasize the importance of evaluating um, the things you've done, the choices you've made, Well, how, how did that apply in your own life?
5: Yeah, so I take that concept, the film doesn't lie, from my coaching sports background. Jeremy, you know that from, from a coaching standpoint, when you put that game film on in front of your team, in front of your players, that's when the real truth is revealed about who you are as a team, who you are as an individual player. And, and that's when real growth and real change occurs as well. When you see it right there in front of you, like, this is who we are. And I take us through that process in this book to just pause in life. And what, what greater time to do that right now when we have the time to do it, to pause and create intentional space in our heart to just evaluate where we are in in, in key areas that, that we all deal with, we all struggle with, we all need to stop and think about. And uh, that's, that's the heart of the book. You know, it's a sports-themed book, but, it, but the overall major thread throughout it is uh, just calling people to a greater authentic walk with God, a, a, a step up in their faith, and the obedience that should go along with that. And I think there's great... Potential. I think there's great growth. I think there's tremendous change that takes place when an individual stops and just says, you know what, I I just want to, I just want to evaluate my heart right now where I am in some key areas of my life and and the feedback that I've gotten from college football and basketball coaches across the country and folks from all walk of life. I, I know this book is taking people to that place in their heart.
3: We're speaking with ESPN's Jimmy Dykes again about his new book, The Film Doesn't Lie Evaluating Your Life, One Play at a Time. When, you know, there is a school of thought, Jimmy, as, as you know, that, um, you know, sometimes, uh, it's better to move on and, and, and don't spend too much time dwelling on the past. Um, don't get bogged down in self analysis or reflection. What are the things you miss out on if that's your approach?
5: Yeah, I think it's a, that, that, that's a great point um, because, you know what, those, those film sessions, I'm going to take this back into the sports world for a minute. Those, those film sessions behind closed doors with a group of 15 players and a coaching staff of five for college basketball, those can be some really hard times to watch, especially coming after a loss. When you see the the twelve fifteen the twenty plays, just if two or three of them we would have done this instead of that, we would have won the game but that's the that's the only way that that real growth and change occurs. There's not a coach in the country that doesn't put one hundred percent trust in evaluating that film and and growing in that process with his players and i i I think that's the i think that's the lesson in this book is there will be some challenging times as you go through this book that you have to just address head on and, and say, I'm not going to run from this anymore. I'm not going to uh, try to be elusive in this area of my life. I, I want to get better in this area. And I think that's when the real change occurs. And uh, it's an easy read because you're, you're talking to me right now. I, I, I don't use big words. I'm not some guy that graduated from Harvard. I'm just a normal guy with a cool job at ESPN But it's it's an easy read from that aspect, Jeremy, but it's a a challenging read from the aspect of it's going to take you into a place where you self-evaluate and self-reflect. And I think if you don't do that intentionally at some point in your life, you miss the path that you should be on. I think you miss God's best path for your life. I think you miss an opportunity to impact those around you in a greater way.
3: Jimmy, thank you for coming back on the show again uh, to address uh, what has changed in the last few weeks. Take care of yourself.
1: Hi, right, Jeremy. Thank you, buddy. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app.
3: Rob McClanahan played basketball for Jim Bayheim in Syracuse. Now he is known as the trainer to some of the NBA's brightest stars, among them Steph Curry, Kevin Durant, Kevin Love, Russell Westbrook, Al Horford, John Wall. He's worked out LeBron James. Last year, he was a guest here on The Sporting Life, talking about his book, Network, two words written with Seth Davis. And it is a pleasure to welcome him back to the show now. Rob, thanks for being with us.
4: No problem, Trevor. Thanks for having me.
3: So, Rob, obviously, uh, the first question's got to be how are your clients doing? We know that uh, Mr. Durant uh, tested positive. Um, What can you tell us about how everybody is doing?
4: Yeah, I think everyone's, you know, in the NBA is kind of like just like everyone else in the country, just at a standstill. Uh, You know, and I think that the thing that really uh, is affecting. Everybody, but I'm for sure these the NBA players is it's the unknown, you know. It's, it's like Adam Silver saying, you know, June 15th we'll start up, or you know, there's no season at all, so you can't really schedule when we're going to start wrapping up any workouts. Um, you know, are we going to have a season? Um, you know, because everything's based on the season, you think about it if the season. Once we they come a decision on that, then you can talk about the draft, right? Then you can talk about when it's when we're going to start up next year, training camp, uh, and then if everything's pushed up, then you got to worry about you know the Olympics next year, you know things like that. So it's just it's very hard, uh, I think, for everybody right now. And, and if these star, I guess, world class athletes, you know, all 450 players, whatever it is, uh, it's tough because you know right now you're you're in the heart of the season wrapping up for the playoffs. so when you when you guy when you're a guy like LeBron or guys like that that are just used to playing every day and have a routine, now you don't, um it's 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 tough. And then the executives, you know, are supposed to have a draft there in two months. And then you have free agency. So it's it's really just a, a time that, you know, no one's and, on, and, and there's no template for it. So everyone's kind of just going day by
3: day. We're speaking to Rob McClanahan, the author of the book Network. He is a trainer, a star trainer, uh, a celebrity himself with many famous clients. And of course, right now, Rob, we're seeing so much of the world shifting to uh, virtual education, uh, home studios for people who work in my industry, uh, all of that stuff. How are you keeping your guys fit, what are they doing right now? Are, are you doing uh, Zoom training sessions, that kind of stuff?
4: Uh, no, not yet. Um, I think it's a little too early for that in a sense where, first of all, these guys can't go to courts. So there's no sense of giving them drills or what have you if you can't go to a basketball court. I mean, I know some gyms in New York and what have you, not only outdoor but indoor, they're taking rims down. Um I read I read you know a thousand to two thousand. I would
3: have assumed some of your clients had their own basketball courts at their homes. I mean, I know that's that's probably not true that many do, but some
4: yeah, some do, but I think most have more of the the kind of hotel weight room kind of gym rather than a court mm-hmm. um you know, but NBA advised them to kind of lay low right now. I think even if we did have a season, would we'll be to mid June, so there's no reason to ramp it up right now. Because if you do come back and you go to the finals, you be playing another three months. You, you got to be careful, you know, not to do too much. But yeah, I think eventually uh, I'll be sending my guys you know, some workouts. You know, I think starting maybe even next week to doing their own some 40 minute kind of stuff, um, and I, you know, hopefully eventually. You know, by, by May 1 or something like that, I can start to travel a bit see some of these guys. I know they're optimistic that something can
3: happen. You have high-profile clients. You have clients nobody's ever heard of. Um, what What is your approach now? What are you telling people to do to stay fit at this time when it might be more important than ever um, to be getting exercise?
4: Yeah, I think the main thing right now is home gym or not, you need to get your body moving. And I'll be sitting around watching Netflix all day, which is easy to do. Um, you know, at the worst, maybe go for a run outside by yourself. Hop on a treadmill. Uh, obviously, you know d- you can do do, do some weights to the j- you know the jail workout: push-ups, pull ups, something like that. But I think the main thing, two main things here are: number one is eating right. Um, that's a, that's a huge thing. I think not only with athletes, but I think everybody this this day and age, in this time, it's very easy to, to eat some comfort food. Get takeout every meal. Delivery. Um, you know, just be lazy really um you know and that's that's scary because if, if you get in a habit of that it could lead to a lot of problems especially for for an athlete never mind it, you're a normal normal person but i think all of us need to be a, a, aware of that and you know eating the right things getting our nutrients it sounds cliche but right now it's very easy to to eat bad not really care about it not drink enough water because we're not working out a lot and then sleep is the other thing. You know, now's a good time to get some good sleep. Let's face it. So, um, those are the two main things I think right now, at least my athletes should be doing. Uh, and as, as far as the normal person not playing a pro sport, should be doing the same thing. Um, we don't know how long this will last, but it, it's a good time to create good habits. I think rather than bad and kind of and kind uh, of you, you know just just ante up and and, and and eat well and. and And really hydrate yourself because this could lead to bad habits that could that could continue after this you know so you don't want you don't want to do that
3: we're speaking to the trainer of the stars rob mcclanahan his book network co-written with seth davis is available and and rob you know it's something that none of us have dealt with in our lifetimes this kind of situation um it, it, it it's you know the word that is used so frequently, but applies is surreal. And as a trainer, you know, you're working on bodies, but you're also working on psyches and you're also dealing with emotions. And, um, sometimes a trainer I know can be a kind of confessor or a therapist. Um, from that point of view, the people you're dealing with, you know, and we've seen the positives uh, for coronavirus in the NBA and Gobert and Mitchell and Kevin Durant. What kind of uh, fear is there out there? What kind of you know how are how are guys dealing with this? I should say emotionally.
4: Yeah, I think first of all they're just they're paying attention to what the league and 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 the government is saying to do. Number one. Uh, but yeah, I, I think it's tough, Jeremy. You know these guys for basically their whole careers going back to college have had what they've had a routine, they've had a schedule every single day. You have to be here at nine for treatment. You got to go on the court at ten. You got film at twelve. You got a commercial shoot at two, whatever it is, um, and so all of a sudden you don't have you don't have any routine, you, you have nothing. Not only that, you can't even really leave your house. Um, so I think that's that's tough. I think on a, on a lot of people just to have no routine and have and not knowing what's what's going to happen, even you know tomorrow, you know. So I think the the main thing with with the NBA guys is you just gotta you gotta stay positive. You, you gotta let this play out. Uh, as long as it might be. you got to listen to Adam Silver and, and your team. And um, But, again, you do have to stay in shape. That is, that is your job. You know, there's a lot of other people working from home in different ways, like yourself or on the computer, or whatever your job is. Um, so they have the same thing they need to do. They need to work out, eat well, uh, you know, maybe study a lot of film. I've been bringing down a lot of film for guys just to kind of watch for a few minutes at a time. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it's really – there's really nothing we can do, let's face it, is, is, you know, besides stay home, you know. So other than that, like I said, you know, there's no template for it. So it's not like you can say, well, back 40 years ago, there's nothing there, you know. So, you know, but hopefully there is a season. I, I think. The, I think the country needs sports, as you know. I think it would help everybody. I saw ESPN. Is we the to Jordan Doc, I think that, that's huge for everybody. That's right. You know, uh yeah. <laughs> it might be the most watched sports doc of all time.
3: Rob McClanahan's book is Network, which two words, which he co-wrote with Seth Davis. It's always a pleasure, Rob, speaking with you. I hope you're taking care of yourself. I know you're home in Rhode Island, being safe. And uh, we always look forward to having you on the show.
4: Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern time.